Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, it's important to make sure that we are ready to uh, listen to the teaching of the Word of God, ready to be taught by the Holy Spirit, ready to have the Holy Spirit make clear to us application uh, to our own lives. It is under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that we all learn and that we all grow, and it is on the basis of His sanctifying ministry, His Christian life uh, developing ministry referred to in the scriptures by such terms as walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, being filled by means of the Spirit, that all of these terms relate to the same dynamic that as we uh, grow, as we mature as believers, this is ultimately produced in our lives through God the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is a supernatural way of life with the supernatural means of operation, which is the Holy Spirit. When we sin, we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. When we confess our sins, then we are restored to fellowship and that ongoing growth-producing aspect of the Spirit's ministry continues. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give people the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to make sure that they are uh, in fellowship and ready to study the Word. Let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we know that as we look at the world around us, we continue to see increasing evidence of the world's hostility to you. And yet, perhaps what we see is simply more and more the unveiling, the disclosure of its hostility, that which has been somewhat veiled, perhaps, at least to our eyes. But the testimony of Scripture is that the general orientation of the majority of human beings, is a rejection of you and a rejection of your grace. Father, as we study your word today, we pray that our hearts might not be hardened, but that we might be reminded of your grace, that not only in salvation, but also in the spiritual life, and that the principles that we study, though they're ultimately related to future events, 
that they have application for today in our own life. Father, we pray that you would uh, give us a greater understanding today of your plans and purposes for the future, but also recognize that uh, as believers in the church age and the body of Christ, though we will not be there, nevertheless, we need to be growing and maturing today in preparation for our future role, responsibilities in the kingdom. May we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, and we continue in our study of the second series of judgments in the tribulation period that are referred to as the trumpet judgments. These trumpet judgments began in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, with the statement that when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Revelation chapters 8 and 9 cover these next series of judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the seven trumpet judgments grow out of the seal judgments, the seventh the seventh seal judgment. One thing that's important to keep in mind is that as we go through the uh, explanation of these future events in Revelation 4 to 20, that the scene shifts. It's important to keep track of where we are, and, and that helps in orienting to the time factor in these judgments. Revelation 4 and 5 give us the framework for understanding these judgments as we saw the throne of God in heaven the angels searching for someone who is qualified to open the seven-sealed scroll that represents the title deed to planet Earth, and this represents the divine authorization for the Son of God to execute his role as the Son of Man to establish his kingdom upon the Earth. That's based on Daniel chapter uh, chapter 7. And so as the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, takes that seven-seal scroll, he begins to open the seals. These seals represent judgments that are designed uh, to carry out several purposes in God's plan. God, as we've seen many times, is, a, is the original multitasker, and he is using these judgments not only to bring discipline upon rebellious humanity, uh, but he also demonstrates in these judgments the hardness of the heart of those who have rejected him, and it confirms them in their unbelief. And this is a standard procedure that we see in human history, is that God provides a evidence of himself, his existence, and his love, not in order to prove necessarily that the scriptures are true or that he is right, but in order, because he is true and because he is right, in order to demonstrate the hardness of the heart of those who have rejected him. And this is a vital part of the various signs that we see in Scripture. When you look at the Gospels and Jesus talks about the signs and the miracles, they not only confirm who he is and his claims to be the Old Testament promised Messiah to Israel, but those miracles and signs also confirmed and established the unbelief of those who rejected him 
and made it clear the more signs and wonders that he performed, the more miracles that he performed, the more his credentials were established, the more the Sadducees and the Pharisees hardened themselves against him, ultimately to the point where they conspire to nail him to the cross. So we see that God uses these signs, these evidences, not only to confirm the veracity of his word, but also to confirm those who are in unbelief. Chapter 6 indicates this because, as we saw with the final seal judgment, that there is a hardening of the heart among those who are called the earth dwellers, the commanders and leaders upon the earth are shaking their fist at God despite uh, what he is doing. So chapter 6 focused on those six seal judgments. 7 goes back to heaven where we see the grace of God displayed uh, during the tribulation period with the saving of the 144,000 Jews and numerous, um, without number, the text says, numerous uh, Gentiles during that period, many of whom become martyred. And then chapter 8 begins the seventh uh, seal, which is made up of these seven trumpet judgments. So always keep in mind that the, seventh tr- the seven trumpet judgments that we're talking about are part of that seventh seal. Revelation 8.2, John says that he saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And what we see here, as we've seen numerous times as we've gone through uh, the book of Revelation, is that angels have a specific role from the supreme court of heaven, from the throne of heaven. They surround the throne of heaven, but they are sent in on these missions to the earth to carry out God's God's commands, God's judgments upon the earth. We see numerous examples of that. Chapter 9 is going to be another one of those. So this is the first time we see these angels as the overseers and executors of judgments. Up to this point, each of the seal judgments began when the Lamb opened the seal. But when the Lamb opens the seventh seal, then we now have these seven angels. So seven angels execute the seven trumpet judgments, and then we'll see that the seven bull judgments are also executed by these by angels as well. And now we, we see just our uh, breakdown here. Let me back up. There's a slide. The first part of the tribulation involves these seal judgments and trumpet judgments. And because of some things I'll say as we go through the class this morning, as we go through our study, there is a gap of time, a transition period between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation. The tribulation fits within that period that is described in the vision Daniel had in Daniel chapter 9 of his 70th week. And we've gone through that in detail that there is a chronology given in Daniel chapter 9, at the end of Daniel 9, of a 490-year period that God has designated for, the, for concluding his dealings with Israel, with the, with the nation of Israel, and that the clock started in approximately 444 B.C. when Artaxerxes gave a decree to uh, Nehemiah to go back and complete the building of the walls and fortifications and defenses of Jerusalem. And the clock stopped after 483 years, as indicated in the prophecy, when the Messiah was cut off when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. And that clock has remained stopped ever since then during this uh, intermediate period known as the church age. 
the clock begins when the Antichrist appears on the scene during the end times after the rapture. So none of you know who the Antichrist is. See, none of you. You may think you do. You may uh, have some opinions, but we don't know. We see, because Satan doesn't know either. Never forget that Satan is as in the dark as you are about when the rapture is going to take place. So he always has to have someone on the scene that he can use to move into that position when the rapture occurs. That's why you go through history and people say, well, I thought it was Napoleon, thought it was Bismarck, thought it was Hitler, thought it was Saddam Hussein, uh, and on and on, but we don't know who it is. And it could have been them if the rapture had occurred. But we don't know who the Antichrist is going to be, and he's not revealed until after the rapture, so uh, don't get distracted with uh, trying to figure out if uh, it's somebody on the political scene today and anywhere in the world. So we have these uh, the, the tribulation beginning with the uh, signing of a peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. Not long after that, the seal judgments begin. We studied those ending with the seventh seal, which contains seven trumpet judgments, and then we looked at the seven trumpet judgments and they end with an announcement that the seventh trumpet judgment is a bold judgment. And that occurs just after the midpoint of the tribulation. So these first six take place, I believe, in the second half of the first half. Are you confused? The second half of the first half of the tribulation. So somewhere in the uh, period from the roughly the midpoint of the second year of the, tribu- of the tribulation on up to about three and a half years. The first four of these trumpet judgments focus on the earth. The first four fo- focus on the earth, and as I pointed out last year, it is typical of God in his historic judgments of this kind to judge that which is worshipped by the human race. An example of that was when I went back to compare the judgments in Revelation to the ten plagues against Egypt during the time of the Exodus. And each of those plagues were designed to demonstrate that the corresponding god or goddess in the Egyptian pantheon uh, was inadequate to really do what their religious beliefs said they would do, that, for example, God turned the water of the Nile into blood. They worshiped the god, god, goddess of the Nile and various other uh, gods and goddesses in the pantheon. So God, again, multitasks that his judgments are also designed to destroy this, the false belief systems of the human race as well. And so uh, we see this shift towards a worship of the earth, nature, the cosmos itself uh, in the in the end times, and we see that already today, that once you take God out of the picture and you're left with a naturalistic explanation of the universe and you're left with some form of Darwinism or evolution, then essentially what you've done is you have deified creation. You've deified nature. You've deified the universe, and it's it's only logical from there that you must start to worship nature and begin to 
uh, make all of your plans and policies on the basis of the fact that, that man in his arrogance thinks he can control nature, control the environment, control climate change, all of these kinds of things that we hear so often today. And, and I hope sometime that we can get someone to, who's more knowledgeable in some of these areas than I am to develop a well-tuned uh, paper or presentation demonstrating the, uh, the evolutionary underpinnings of the modern environmentalist movement and specifically of all of this global, uh, global uh, climate change, stuff, global warming and climate change. It's interesting this last week, even the, that renowned bastion of wisdom and scientific acumen up there on the um, East River in uh, New York, known as the United Nations, that even they had to recognize that there has been no evidence of atmospheric warming since 1995 and that perhaps we need to rethink. So God judges the creation during this period because that becomes the focus of a naturalistic worldview that there is nothing supernatural. And then in the last three, which is where we find ourselves today, beginning in Revelation 9-1, those are judgments against the human race, against man who has fallen, man who has uh, rejected God. And so just as we continue, we saw that these seven angels began to uh, blow their trumpets to announce these judgments in Revelation 8-6. And then I also showed that there's a comparison and contrast between the, between various elements of the judgments in Exodus and those that we see in the trumpet judgments. And the reason I do this is because Revelation 9 and 10 are often subject to quite fanciful interpretations. Part of this is because there is a large segment of Christianity coming beginning way back in the early church age around the uh, latter part of the 2nd century and early part of the 3rd century that shifted away from a literal interpretation of scripture and what we mean by literal is just using language in its plain normal meaning and someone said that when the uh, uh, scripture the sense of scripture is clear then make no other sense But if it's not clear in terms of the normal plain use of language, then there should be something within the text itself to indicate that it's a figure of speech or it's an idiom or it's something of that nature. And so it's not to be understood or interpreted in a literal fashion. And when you get into Revelation chapter, chapters eight and especially chapters nine with the two demonic assault armies that come along and you get into the, um, especially the first one that we're studying This morning, these locusts who come out of the abyss who are bringing this horrible, uh, painful uh, sickness, punishment, sting upon humans, and they can't even die, though they they desire to. And we'll get to this in verses 7 through uh, 10, that when they are described, even among certain uh, dispensationalists who allegedly hold to a literal interpretation, there are those who come up with rather fanciful uh, interpretations of this, trying to identify these as, for example, Huey Cobras, or uh, I guess today that would be updated to uh, 
Blackhawk helicopters or something of that nature, and I don't think that's at all right. We have to stick with a uh, literal understanding of the text. And so the reason I put put this chart up is to show that if we're going to interpret these judgments in Exodus in a literal fashion, that the hail, the fiery hail was literal hail, that the water was turned to literal blood, that there's literal darkness on the land of Egypt at the time, and there were literal locusts and literal death, then when we see these same kinds of things in Revelation, we need to interpret them also in the same way. We can't jump into fanciful sorts of interpretive schemes just because we don't quite understand how it works. We have to stick with a consistent pattern of interpretation, otherwise we end up just making things up. And there's all kinds of things here. This demonic army is sometimes thought to be said to be Islam. That was a popular interpretation in the Middle Ages and on into the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. It's also been identified with uh, the communists and various other things. And but that, that you can't establish that from the text. It's something that is quite different from that. In fact, it's very clear that this is a unique invasion that occurs in history, and that, in fact, in Revelation 9, we have two different demonic invasions. These are not represented by the normal, natural scheme of things, but come out of the very pit, uh, the abyss in the uh, fifth trumpet judgment, and out of a special holding place uh, under the Euphrates for the next one, but we'll get into that probably uh, next time. So we looked at the second trumpet judgment. We saw that something like a great mountain, this is a visual of a burning asteroid or comet goes into the sea. A third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the creatures in the sea die, and a third of the ships are destroyed. So it wipes out shipping, commerce, many things like that are just uh, destroyed in the, in the um, and the third judgment falls on the fresh water. The second trumpet was on the fresh, fresh uh, salt water. This is on the uh, fresh water. Falls on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. This star is another asteroid type of thing called wormwood. Now, star in uh, this passage is literal. It refers to something that, could, that is either an asteroid or a comet. The previous trumpet, the second trumpet, viewed it as a great burning mountain. This, is, this one is different. It's called a star, and star is used of literal uh, astrophysical objects, physical objects such as uh, stars or comets or asteroids, but it's also used to refer to angels, as we'll see in Revelation 9.1. The fourth trumpet, we see that this, again, affects the light of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars are struck, and a third of them are darkened. And so uh, we can often summarize the trumpet judgments as the one-third judgments. Uh, in the seal judgments, a quarter of the earth's population is killed. In the fourth trumpet judgment, a third is killed. And so you have all, all, half the earth's population is killed during this period of time. Then there is an interlude that occurs that is introduced in the last verse of chapter 13 as this eagle flying through the heavens announces an intensification of judgments, as if it could get any worse, that there will be this intensification that comes in the last three trumpet judgments. And, of course, the the third of these woes, and these last three trumpet judgments are called woes, announced as woe, 
Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. So the first woe is the fifth judgment, the fifth trumpet judgment. The second woe is the sixth trumpet judgment. And the third woe is the seventh trumpet judgment, which will, in fact, be the seven bold judgments and the final judgments of the tribulation period. So these woes are announced to a class of people called those who dwell upon the earth. Now, we have seen in our study of Revelation in the past that this is a technical term for those who consistently reject God and the gospel throughout the tribulation period. It is not a term that is equivalent to just unbelievers, but to a subset of unbelievers that never become believers. There are some unbelievers at the beginning of the tribulation that do become believers during the tribulation period. And we've seen this in the past, that there are three classes of people in the tribulation. First of all, there are those who enter the tribulation period as believers. They enter as believers. Now, I hear somebody going, well, wait a minute, all believers got raptured. Yes, but remember, there's a transition period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. It could be a day, a week, a year. It could be several years. And between the rapture of the church and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, there are going to be some who come over to your house and find it empty. And they're going to scratch their head and say, "Uh uh-oh. They were telling me that this might happen. I better believe in Jesus. There will be numerous Jews. I don't know about you, but I've had the privilege to witness to a number of of Jews over the years who just, I mean, time after time after time, uh, you get an opportunity to explain the gospel to them, and they just don't get it. They don't want to listen. And I believe that there are going to be a number of these Jews that are going to trust in Christ. If they're alive right after the rapture, uh, they're going to trust in Christ immediately because they will understand what happened. They may even be part of the 144,000. But there are those who enter the tribulation period as believers, and then there are those who begin the tribulation period as unbelievers, but they're saved during the tribulation period itself. This would include the 144,000 Jews, as well as countless Jews and Gentiles uh, that are saved during the tribulation period, many of whom are martyred. And then there's this third class, the earth dwellers. They're thinking, they're called earth dwellers not because they live on the earth, but because their thinking is restricted to that which is physical and finite and limited. It is earthbound. It is not oriented to heaven. It is oriented to the earth. Their thinking is such that they have rejected the existence of anything that is beyond uh, the physical or the temporal. And so it is, it is finite and they refuse to accept the fact that God exists even though by the end, uh, by the time you get to the, uh, fifth seal, or the sixth seal judgment, which we've already studied, they're, re- they know that God is the one judging them, that all of this is happening from the throne of God and yet they continue to shake their fist at Him, uh, in anger and in rejection. They're rejection of God is based on their own volition, and as the judgments increase, their hostility and resentment and bitterness toward God is going to continue to increase, and that's the dynamic of negative volition. 
And we see patterns like that today. We see trends like that. I don't know how many people that I have talked to in recent years who read an article in the newspaper about some anti-Christian group, somebody now the time of year when you hear more of the uh, atheist secular crowd who are trying to come up with an alternative to Christmas and trying to take Christ out of Christmas as if Christmas is a secular holiday, and they get involved in a lot of historical revisionism. And now there are websites that are up there, and I think with the uh, election of this new president, uh, the wackos are coming out of the woodwork. It, it always seems to me that, if it, that, that birds of a feather tend to flock together, the old aphorism, and and it amazes me that if, if you were someone who voted in favor of this new president and you were to read an article in the uh, paper telling you that the most liberal anti-biblical religious organization in the world known as the National Council of Churches was rejoicing at his election, that if you were at all interested in the Bible, that you would have to stop and ask yourself a question as to why would these people who have rejected the authority of the Word of God and rejected the truth of the Bible and have this, this liberal agenda uh, so much in favor of this particular president? What are the dynamics that are going on here? So that's an important question to ask, and what we see is that what we've seen is that people who reject the truth of God's word seem to get more and more entrenched into their hostility and rejection of God. And that's the same kind of thing that you're going to see with the earth dwellers. The earth dweller term is used many times in Revelation. In Revelation 3.10, we're told that the tribulation is a test or judgment from God on those who dwell upon the earth. Then in Revelation 8.13, we're told that just because they are hostile to God and negative, that God's grace still extends to them. And we have this eagle that is flying through the air, uh, warning them of this judgment. So God's grace doesn't stop just because people have hardened themselves to him and just because God knows that they will continue to harden themselves to him. His grace continues. Uh, we see in Revelation 11.10 that these earth dwellers will rejoice over the execution of the two prophets. And then finally, I believe, they, the, those who are antagonistic to God will replace Christmas with another holiday. And it will be a holiday based on the execution of the two prophets that God sends in the tribulation period because we're told that when the Antichrist executes them, that the earth dwellers will rejoice and they will give presents to one another and they will turn this into a time of great celebration. So that will become the, the new holiday. Uh, Revelation 13, 8, 10, and 14 tell us that that the earth dwellers are those who will worship the Antichrist, the first beast, and go so far as to erect an idol to him to worship that. And then we are told that the mentality of the earth dwellers is that they are drunk with the human viewpoint, anti-God paganism. They are so absorbed in their own thinking that the, the scriptures pictures them as being drunk with the wine of their own thought. And so they are completely divorced from reality, just as uh, when you drink too much wine, you become divorced from reality. So then we come to our fifth trumpet. The fifth angel sounds, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key to the bottomless pit 
was given to him. The key to the bottomless pit was given to him. Now, this presents a shift in these judgments from a physical type of judgment or a judgment upon the physical earth to a supernatural method of bringing judgment. This fifth angel that sounds the trumpet is announcing that it's time to go for this one particular angel. Now, John is writing from his perspective, and he says, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen, and this is a perfect tense of the verb to fall, indicating it had already fallen. So it's emphasizing a present reality that he doesn't watch it fall. He sees that it already had fallen, but that's from his perspective. It's like walking into a movie just after the credits. You see that it's already started, but that doesn't mean that that anything other than from your perspective. And so this is often thought by people to mean that because it had already fallen, that that's a reference to Satan's fall. This angel is not to be understood as either a fallen angel or Satan because this is an angel who functions as the jailer. This angel that falls from heaven is simply sent on this mission, and his rapid descent from heaven to the earth is pictured as falling because that is an image that we understand that if someone drops, uh, jumps off a building and falls, that they drop like a rock. And so that imagery of fallen is to, to depict the speed at which he has descended uh, to the earth in order to execute his mission. But he's given the key to the uh, bottomless pit, and so he functions as a jailer. Now, before I go any further, I want to go back and look at the fact that this star is, in fact, an angel and not, uh, not a star per se. We know this from several uh, lines of evidence. The first is just what's there in the passage is that this seems to be an intelligent being. He receives the key. He has been given the key. And he holds the key, and he's able to use the key to unlock the jail cell, which holds this particular uh, demonic army. Uh, Angels are also referred to as stars many times in the Scripture. Star, The term star is used three ways in the Scripture. The first way is that it refers to the physical object in the heavens. This could be an asteroid, a comet, or an actual, what we would call today an actual star. The second way in which it's used is to describe the 12 tribes of Israel. It's used this way in Genesis chapter 37 when uh, Joseph is relating his dream that the sun and the moon and the and 12, uh, 12 stars bow down to him and this represent or 11 stars bow down to him and represents his mother, his father, and his 11 brothers. And that same imagery is picked up in Revelation chapter 12. So it's used to refer to Israel, but... In terms of symbolism, it's primarily used throughout the scriptures to refer to angels. And we have two passages that make this very clear. One is in Job 38, verses 4 through 7, a series that's part of the series of rhetorical questions that God is using to focus uh, Job on the fact that he really doesn't know as much as he thinks he knows. And so God begins with the question, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And in relation to that founding, found, laying the foundation of the earth, in verse 7, God says, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And there is this parallelism between the morning stars and the sons of God. 
which tells us that the morning stars is a reference to angels because the term sons of God or B'nai Elohim in the Hebrew is a technical term used in the Old Testament to describe angels. So here we have a clear reference to stars being a term, a metaphorical term for for angels. And then Isaiah 14, 13, which is part of the passage describing the fall of Lucifer, his his original sin, he states the five I wills, and one of those, the second one, is I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He will. He wants to rule over the angels, and so this term is uh, typical of the Old Testament uh, references to understanding the the uh, imagery here, the uh, metaphor for the for the stars. So the fifth angel sees a star that is an angel fallen from heaven. And it fits the pattern that we've seen in, the, uh, in Revelation of angels being used to execute the judgments of God from the throne of God. And so this angel is being sent now from the courtroom of God in heaven, much as a modern court would send a U.S. marshal out or a bailiff out to execute its will. That's what's happening here. And this angel is going to uh, release this demonic army that has been imprisoned in a place called uh, called the abyss. And the abyss is a based on a Greek word that means a place without um, without a bottom, a place without a bottom. So when we look there uh, in Revelation chapter nine at the end of verse one, and also going into verse two, let me go back to verse one here. He goes down and he has the key to the bottomless pit. This was given to him. Notice it's a passive verb. Now, passive verb means that uh, the grammatical subject of the verb, which is the uh, the, uh, the star, re- receives the action of the verb. So the star receives the action of, of giving. Who gave it to him? Well, if we study Revelation, the one who has the key to the abyss, to Hades, as well, is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is seen in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. And the, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the living one. He says, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, Hades and the abyss are related to one another in Romans chapter 10, verse 7. When Paul says, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Hades was the place of the dead. And so we must understand that Hades had several compartments, several compartments. In the Old Testament, it had a compartment called uh, paradise, also called Abraham's bosom, Luke chapter 16. That place is now in heaven. Paradise was transferred to heaven after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then there was a place of torments. This is where all of the unsaved go. Then there's the place of the abyss, which is the location of the demon army related to the fifth seal. And then there's a place of those demons who are continue to be imprisoned during the uh, tribulation period under chains of darkness, according to passages in Jude and First uh, Peter. This is where those uh, demons who were called the sons of God in Genesis 6 who intermarried with daughters of men to produce a hybrid race in the attempt to destroy the uh, genetic unity and purity of the human race. Uh, this, this refers to that group who are permanently imprisoned 
until the uh, judgment of the angels and they're cast into the lake of fire. So we're told in verse 2, and he opened the bottomless pit. That is the uh, abyss. This is the place where there is uh, no, literally it just means a place without, uh, without bottom. And it is somewhere, pictured somewhere within the, within the earth. And then we go on to read, he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit. Now, we must also interpret this smoke as literal. This isn't just figurative. It's literal. It's pictured something like a volcano, but it's not a volcano. Uh, the smoke is understood as literal because we see it associated with judgment and understand it to be literal in other similar judgment passages, such as the judgment, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19.28, and also uh, the smoke surrounding the presence of God in his uh, Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19.18. Smoke is often associated with judgment, doom, and torment. So there uh, is a physical opening in the earth, and it is out of this uh, opening, this shaft, literally, uh, 9.3 says, or excuse me, 9.2, when it says he opened the bottomless pit, it's really the shaft uh, to uh, the abyss. Smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air are darkened by the smoke of the pit. So as it opens, this, this belch of smoke and ash, and it would, in that sense, it would be similar to a volcano, goes up into the atmosphere and is going to further minimize the light that reaches the earth uh, from the sun. And so this increases the problems upon the earth. And then in verse 3 we read, Out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. So this is Satan's first demonic assault army in the tribulation. There are various similarities with the eighth plague, uh, the eighth Egyptian plague in uh, Exodus, but these, in contrast, are not ordinary locusts. Uh, Proverbs 30, verse 27 says, The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. So there's no leader of locusts, but there is a leader of this locust-slash-demon army in the tribulation period known as Abaddon. You might even say that because these are locusts and they have a tail like a scorpion, they're compared to a scorpion, the steel, the uh, uh, the tail and the sting of a scorpion, that these are the original scorpion kings uh, who are going to then plague the earth during a five-month period in the tribulation time. Uh, the locusts, locusts in the Bible are often used to depict judgment, not that they're not literal, because often there was a literal locust a plague uh, that would come upon Israel and the locusts would descend and just destroy all of their crops. But that was used as, a, as, a, as imagery to communicate the devastation and destruction of the armies during the tribulation period during the day of the Lord. And just as literal locusts would devastate the land, so the armies during the tribulation period will also devastate the land. 
And that is seen in Joel 1 and 2, which those two chapters are the key Old Testament passage where you see locusts used to depict judgment. But these, this army here is not a, simply a physical locust uh, army. They're given instructions. There are limitations to what these uh, locusts can do. And this is described in verses 4 and 5. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth. If you remember in the, uh, in the first uh, trumpet judgment, all the grass on the earth is burned up. But it's grown back now, so some time has gone by between the first trumpet judgment and this trumpet judgment, so that now they're told not to hurt the grass of the earth or any green thing. The focus isn't on the physical as it was in the, in the first four trumpet judgments, but it's now on, the, uh, on mankind. They were told not to hurt any green thing or any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. This would include uh, unbelievers who would become believers as well as uh, the earth dwellers. And verse 5, they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment them for five months, and their torment was like that of a scorpion when it stings man. Now, this isn't the torment of a Texas scorpion that stings men. Uh, there are the, the scorpions in Texas, thankfully, by the grace of God, are, are not that bad. Uh, they're, they're painful like a bee sting or a wasp sting, but they're not like uh, some of the scorpions that you would find in Mexico or scorpions you would find in Africa that are incredibly deadly. Uh, but these are going to bring an illness, a sickness upon those who are stung by them. And verse 6 says, in those days men will seek death. They will try to kill themselves. The pain is so bad. The misery is so intense that they will try to kill themselves. They will try to f- find death. But they will, and they will long to die, and death flees from them. It will not be possible. Death will run away from them. They're not even going to be able to kill themselves, and they are going to suffer incredible physical uh, torment for this uh, five-month period of time. Now, starting in verse 7, we have a description of what these locusts look like. Uh, you, you must interpret this somewhat Literally, because that's what it depicts, although there are some images that are used here. Their appearance was like horses. There's a comparison. There's a similarity and a difference. They are like horses prepared for battle. In the way that a horse is armored for battle, so these were uh, similarly armored uh, from their natural uh, shells like a locust would have. On their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. It doesn't say they are crowns, but they appear to be that way. They look like that. And so there's something on their head that is uh, rather shiny like gold. And um, let me see, I blotted out part of that. Their faces, this is verse 7, their, uh, their faces were like the faces of men, but then... They have the hair of women, so there's long hair, and their teeth are like the teeth of lions. So they are voracious, they are destructive, they are uh, deadly. And then verse 9 says, They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. That goes back to the imagery of the horses who are uh, armored for battle. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. That's where some have thought they sound like a you know, battalion of uh, helicopters coming in. But, but this is just the, the, these supernatural, 
locust demons. They, these demons take the form of these locusts, and this is uh, something like what they will appear to be. And then verse 10 tells us that the, in their tails, their tails are like scorpions, and they have stings, and they have the power to hurt men for a period of five months. But they have a king over them. This is one of the highest of all of the demons, and he is, he is called the angel of the abyss. Now, he's not the angel who opens the abyss, but he is the leader, as it were, the gang leader in the uh, abyss prison. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means the destroyer, and the Greek equivalent is the name Apollyon, from the same Greek verb that refers to perishing. Those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will perish. Uh, according to John 3.16, it's the same uh, root there that we have for uh, Apollyon. The word in the, the noun in the Greek is Apollyumi. So this indicates uh, his, his character. He is a destroyer. Now, last week, I made a comment that we only know the names of a couple of angels. I was speaking of elect angels, not the fallen angels. We have a couple of names of fallen angels, Lucifer and uh, Apollyon, but I wasn't uh, alluding uh, to them. So we come to verse verse 11 in this reference to the angel who leads them, this fallen angel who leads them. He is the destroyer, and that is his orientation. And then in verse 12, that's his mission, and they destroy through the stings of the uh, uh, stings like a scorpion. And then in verse 12 we read, "One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things." Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm, I'm thinking, well, how can it get much worse? We've seen the first series of judgments, the seal judgments, and those final judgments. There's this, uh, this asteroid uh, shower that hits the whole earth, and the kings of men, the leaders of, of men are hiding in the mountains, calling upon the mountains to fall down around them to protect them from these judgments of God. And now we see an intensification of that, and it's gotten so much worse during these first five trumpet judgments that now we see uh, something that is just horrible to behold, and this is operating on all of, all of mankind. Maybe not at the same time. Maybe they move around the world. It takes them five months to cover the whole earth. Uh, we're not told. But when we come to verse 13, then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. That's the altar of incense. For those of you who weren't here on, on Thursday night, you ought to go back and listen to the lesson because we uh, found out some fascinating things about the altar of incense in the tabernacle and temple. This is the altar of incense. So that becomes background for understanding what's, what's happening here in the imagery of verse, verse 13. So you might want to check that out before we go forward. Now, what we have seen here is an incredibly intense judgment by God on the human race. And I, I don't know about you, but the question that occurs to me as I look at this whole text is, is well, so what significance does this have for me in the church age, I'm not going to see this. I'm not going to be there. What is the real impact of this on, on where I am today? And the impact should be uh, in a couple of different areas. One of these areas is that when you look at this, it reminds us that God is a God of justice, and he is going to judge 
sin and evil eventually. It may not be to the way we are when we think it should be, but it will occur during the tribulation period. And this is a part of God's plan in bringing sin and evil to a final end during the tribulation period. So we can rejoice in that, knowing that whatever injustice that we may face, whatever uh, undeserved suffering we may go through in this life, that ultimately God is going to make all things right. A second thing we should take away from this is a recognition of God's grace, that this first woe was announced by this angel, and as a result of that announcement, we see God's grace to those on the earth. They know what's coming, and there's always a solution offered. Now, we're not in a period that's as bad as the tribulation. We're in the church age, and God's grace is manifested to us in ways that are uh, just extraordinary in all of, all of human history. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God continuously offers that. And there's no sin that you could ever commit that would be anything as bad or intense as these earth dwellers in the tribulation period, and yet God continues to extend his grace to them throughout the tribulation period and he can, even to the point where when we come to the bold judgments, he will send angels throughout the atmosphere, and they will announce the gospel to the earth dwellers. And so just because you have uh, some sin in your past or you've done something that you think is so horrible and terrible, it's too great for God to forgive, what we see in this passage is that there's no sin that's too great for the grace of God, that God's grace can take care of any sin that we come up with. And the third thing that we note from this is a realization that human history is really part of a greater cosmic battle. And that cosmic battle we often refer to as the angelic conflict. And that human history intersects with this this cosmic conflict that relates to the angelic rebellion, Satan's rebellion. And for God to bring all of human history to a close, there has to be a more direct intersection of these two realms, the invisible realm of the angels now and the physical realm of man. And what we're going to see is that these are going to come together in the tribulation period to the point that, as we'll see at the uh, uh, end of chapter 12, that the earth dwellers refuse to give up their worship of demons. They refuse to give up their worship of demons. And so the demons will be cast out of heaven and they will be physically visible and walking around on the earth during the tribulation period. And that is necessary for God to bring about this final uh, conclusion to his judgment and purification of the earth and the human race because of sin. It also tells us how complex the whole sin problem is. It's not simple. The solution is easy to understand, but the more we study these things, the more we realize that the solution is so complex because sin is really an extremely complex problem. But God is greater than any problem that any creature can develop, and his grace has given us the solution. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace that you in eternity past understood, comprehended instantly all of the all of the problems, all of the complexities of the sin problem. And you developed a perfect solution, a solution that's so simple that even a child of four or five or six can comprehend. And yet theologians down through these centuries have, have written volumes trying to explain it all. 
It's a simple solution that you sent your son Christ to die on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty, and in that payment, he solved all the problems that sin produced. And all we have to do is simply believe on him. We accept his death on our behalf as a free gift, and that in the acceptance and the reception of Christ, the believing upon him as our Savior, at that instant you give us uh, your righteousness, you impute it to us, you declare us just, you give us new life. We're regenerated, we're no longer spiritually dead, but spiritually alive, and this can never be taken from us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is accept that free gift from God, the free gift of Jesus Christ. You simply believe on him, believe that he died for your sins, and you have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray for the rest of us. You'll challenge us with the fact that as we look upon these future judgments, that our role, though we are not there, is to recognize that our lives are just as much part of this cosmic conflict, this angelic rebellion, as those in the tribulation, and that our role today is to live to glorify you in the angelic conflict, to demonstrate your grace in our lives as an eternal testimony to your character that will always be on display in heaven. And now we pray that you challenge us with all that we study today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.